If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you're a person who is an immigrant or a second generation immigrant and your house gets taken away to build a public housing project. That's one thing, and that's sad in many ways. But if your house gets taken away to build a housing project, and then it gets sold to a private businessman to build a baseball stadium, I mean, that's it's one of those epic kind of wrongs. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we're talking to the author of this amazing book called Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. His name is Eric Nussbaum. I'm so excited to talk to him and talk about the founding of Dodger Stadium, Chavez Ravine, and uh, the price for one of the most famous pieces of architecture in all of sports. Also, I've got some choice words about the NCAA and the idea of them coming back this fall. And I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards. But first, let's talk to Eric Nussbaum. So, Eric, this is the big question I wanted to ask you um, as I was reading the book. A lot of people have been displaced for stadium land over the years. Yet, the Dodgers case has been a PBS special, a documentary, a Rye Cooter album, and to me, most impressively, this book. Why has this case so captured people's imagination over the decades when so many other stadium land grab stories have sort of been lost to history? I think the reason that this case is different is that it encompasses so much more than just the Dodgers and some communities. You know, it's really a story about public housing. It's a story about corruption and politics. It's a story about kind of the development of a city at a time when it could have gone differently. It could still go differently now than it does in places like Inglewood, but usually we kind of know, know the blueprint already. We kind of have a sense of how these things are going to go and what tactics everybody's going to use. But the Dodger story 
really was sort of this sort of like epic opera of a of a tale. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it wasn't just the team moves in and bullies people. You know, the team really didn't come in until the last act of this. It was really a failure on the part of government and of society at large more than anything else. Is that what grabbed you about the subject matter? I mean, it's it, it's such a the book for folks, you know, people should read it. Uh, and it, it has an, an, a really an epic amount of research. Is, is that what grabbed you about the subject matter, the twisty, pulpy aspect of it? Uh, that definitely grabbed me. That was a big part of it. What grabbed me initially was the kind of humanity of the story. It was the lives of the people who lost their homes. You know, if you're a person who is an immigrant or a second generation immigrant and your house gets taken away to build a public housing project. That's one thing, and that's sad in many ways. But if your house gets taken away to build a housing project, and then it gets sold to a private businessman to build a baseball stadium, I mean, that's it's one of those epic kind of wrongs. And it, I think even still, it, it infuriates me. And um, I feel a lot of empathy and I feel a lot of connection with the people who who had to face that. And I think it was that feeling more than anything else that drew me to this story. You know, that, that really comes through in, in the book, um, that the empathy that you feel for the folks who uh, were removed from their homes. And, you know, when we talk about this, when I've talked about this, um, it's it's always uh, Chavez Ravine, Chavez Ravine. The people of Chavez Ravine lost their homes to build Dodger Stadium. But should we even say... Chavez Ravine, when we talk about the people who lost their homes, is that's not even correct, is it? I mean, it's correct in a sense, but it's it's sort of retroactively correct, I think. Uh, the people who live there, they really called themselves by the names of the three kind of smaller communities uh, that consisted of what we now call Chavez Ravine. It was Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. So those were three separate neighborhoods. And if you were from one, you would be identifying as a person from, say, Palo Verde. You would not say, I'm from Chavez Ravine. It was, it was a different, there were different places and they had different sensibilities and, you know, little petty neighborhood rivalries and stuff like that. Mm. So I once read that Chavez Ravine was called the poor man Shangri-La. Um, who lived there? Who lived there? Who were these residents? Where did they come from and what kind of community did they build for themselves? So... That phrase has kind of stuck around. I don't know who said it first, but it, it was one of the Ry Cooter songs on his album, and it, it resonated. I think maybe it was in, the, in a Don Normark photo book. The, the people who lived there were mostly Mexican, Mexican-American. Uh, it was about 1,000, 1,200 families. It could have been more. Um, records weren't the best at the time. And each community was a little bit different. There were quite a few homeowners. If you lived in Palo Verde, it looked like another neighborhood in L.A., you know, paved streets, Telephone service, electricity, plumbing. Um, the L.A. Police Academy was right down the street. Uh, La Loma, for example, would have been a little bit more rural. It would have been like living up in the hills of a small town somewhere. Um, maybe not everything is quite as finished. Some goats roaming around sometimes. But it was kind of a semi-rural town in the middle of L.A. And it was a little bit isolated by geography and by infrastructure from the other parts of the city. So city leaders could conveniently forget about it when it came time to do code enforcement or provide bus service or, you know, community centers or things like that. It was a little bit left behind and it suffered for that. 
Mm. Now you mentioned this earlier um, in the interview. I, I want our listeners to understand this. I think a lot of people don't know this history. Um, it was originally displaced for public housing. And then that public housing was undermined by a whole host of political issues that were taking place in the country. Can you, can you explain that part of the story? Yeah. So I think that there's like a, a mythology with Dodger Stadium that I wanted to, to sort of unwind. And the mythology is that the Dodgers came from Brooklyn and they kicked out a bunch of people. It didn't really happen that way. Uh, what really happened is, in fact, I think a lot sadder. What happened was that around the late 40s and early 50s, the city decided that the site of these communities should be the site of a brand new public housing project. And this is a time when public housing was still, um, you know, being supported by people. It was still a feasible idea for overcrowding, you know, overcrowded cities. And there wasn't as much of a stigma yet. Uh, the book traces this one housing activist named Frank Wilkinson, and he's one of the main characters in the book. Mm-hmm. And he's testifying uh, at a I'm in a domain hearing in 1952 about about this particular project. It was called Elysian Park Heights, and it was going to be this stunning architectural thing with these towers overlooking the city. And somebody asked him to name his political affiliations, and Frank refused. And it turns out that Frank actually was a member of the Communist Party, and his whole life basically is ruined at that point. And the housing development is ruined. Um, and it, really public housing in LA as an entity, as a possibility is ruined. It was wow. really truly a red scare conspiracy uh, kind of run by the city's power brokers, by elite businessmen, by the owners of the LA Times. And that was the moment that it all sort of came crashing down. What was it because uh, they were just part of the Red Scare Brigade that was going on across the country? Or did they have interests that would have been threatened by public housing? It was the latter. They were, I mean, they were kind of reactionary conservative politics people for the most part. But I think a lot of that was politics of convenience. They saw the Red Scare as an opportunity to end public housing. And public housing was a threat to private real estate development. Mm -hmm. So it was truly, I think, a business oriented thing. You have, you know, a group in LA started by some businessmen uh, called Citizens Against Socialist Housing, CASH. Uh, and I think that kind of tells you, the acronym tells you all you need to know about the motives of the people behind it. Were, were, they, were they conscious of that? when they Yeah, were- they, were. they were. I think they thought it was funny. Uh, they, 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 you know, they would put up these billboards that were like, don't pay someone else's rent and stuff like that. It was very... Um, it was very blatantly opportunistic. So basically, people start to be um, kicked out of their homes to create this public housing project, and then the public housing project dies. Yeah, so in 1953, L.A. elects an anti-housing mayor, sort of installed, puppet mayor, by installed by the Chandler family, who owns the L.A. Times, Norris Polson. And Polson finally puts the last nail in the coffin of the housing project. But the problem is that some of the residents of these communities, including the one family I really focus on, the Arechiga family, they have not left their homes. So they are still there fighting. And now they think, well, we have a pretty good case to make for staying. You can't really kick us out of our house to build a housing project and then make us leave when you're not going to build it. So the city and the families that are still there enter into this kind of stalemate, right? The neighborhood is emptying out. It's almost gone. You know, houses are getting demolished and dirt is going up and down. And 
these families just kind of stay and they say, well, we're, we're not going to be moved right now. You tried to take our house to do this public project and now you're not doing it. So, you know, a whole legal battle ensues. Finally, the city does what any apparently uh, mid-century American city does uh, and sells the land to get a brand new baseball team, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that sets off another legal battle about whether it's okay to use land that was acquired with eminent domain for a private purpose. And there's a lot of debate about whether a stadium is a public purpose or a private purpose and whether that's different if it's a privately owned stadium. And here we have a lot of echoes or kind of, sorry, I'm going to repeat that. Here um, we start to see a lot of the questions that are now echoed in today's kind of fights over stadiums and whether they serve a public purpose or not and whether city cities and states and the federal government should be using their tax dollars to kind of lure teams and build these developments in cities. This is like a major pivot in American history. It's not just a stadium story for Los Angeles, because like you said, all of these arguments are so familiar today. And like when, when I was in uh, Rio uh, researching how they were preparing for the World Cup and the Olympics, that, that's what all the debates were like. Like, do people have the right to take people out of their homes to create these stadiums? Do those stadiums constitute a public good? And what what about the people left behind and their resistance and their efforts to try to stay? Uh, should that be something that's supported by the public or not? I mean, did did the people in Ch Chavez Ravine, did they... I mean, there, there were a lot of uh, leftist groups in Los Angeles at the time. Uh, were, were, did they get support from the broader community as a whole? They got some. It ended up being really split, but not the way you might think. You know, um, a lot of leftist groups, a lot of progressive groups supported the stadium deal. They, they saw, first of all, you know, union job opportunities with the construction of the stadium, and that's a familiar fight. And they saw kind of that the city already owned the land and they kind of thought it was inevitable. Uh, in 58, after the Dodgers moved to LA, there was a ballot measure on whether this was legal. Basically, you know, it reached the point where the city voted on it and it was a very close vote. 52% uh, voted to approve the deal and 48% of LA voted against it. And you'd be surprised the 52% that voted for it were largely from South LA and East LA. They're minority communities for the most part. Um, the allies of these homeowners or these last kind of holdouts in the community were sort of like working class conservative white families, like in the Valley, who were big property rights people. And it ended up being this sort of weird alliance of convenience between kind of right wing politicians in L.A. city government and this, you know, immigrant Mexican-American family uh, holding out against this big corporation. It was it was a very weird and surreal uh, political map. Huh. So, so the, the very people that the white conservative Valley folks would be voting for were the people trying to get the stadium in, but their constituency was against them for the purposes of this referendum. Yeah, for them pretty much. There was a couple of council members who were from that community who were really st staunch allies of, of the Adetica family. And, staunch opponents of the deal, uh, partly because they were just sort of anti-tax, right? Sort of libertarian, like you should not, we should not use our public dollars to benefit Walter O'Malley and the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's ridiculous. We should not use our public dollars to build a private business for somebody else. Uh, so from a conservative perspective, 
you can make a pretty strong argument for why these stadium deals are bad. In LA, you know, the city gave 300 acres to the Dodgers to build a privately owned stadium. They didn't give it to them, but they gave it to them at a really good price. And mm-hmm. if you're if you're you know a a Justin Amash conservative or whatever, uh, you could see why that would be appalling. And I think it's sort of ironic that those voices ended up being some of the strongest on on behalf of the remnants of the communities that were fighting for their homes. Was uh, racism used at all as a justification for tearing apart this community? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't even say racism was used. I would say racism was the justification from the beginning, you know, from when the way that explicitly like the rhetoric that was used for getting rid of this community. It wasn't like we have to get rid of them because they're, you know, not white. It was more, look at these slums, look at these backwards barrios up in the hills. You know, they don't have anything. They're living like it's in old Mexico. It's it's very, um, it was kind of the like, the racism that touched everything in mid-century LA. And it was implicit in every single thing. Uh, even the, you know, progressive housing advocates who were saying that these neighborhoods had to go and be cleared out as part of, you know, urban renewal, there was a lot of racism in that. Um, even as they were arguing that we needed to integrate public housing, they were sort of also saying that, you know, these mixed or, you know, Latino areas were not good enough. And there's a sort of paternal racism element in there. Um, later on, it comes out so. I'll fast forward a little bit. You know, the county sheriff's deputies evict forcibly the Adechiga family, this kind of family at the center of the fight, and it's on TV, and it's a huge controversy. And the city, at first, has a lot of sympathy for them, saying, oh, wow, these poor people had nowhere else to go. You know, they they got forcibly evicted and watched their home get bulldozed. How tragic. A few days later, um, it gets revealed that they owned other property in the city. And as soon as you see people who are Mexican, Mexican-American, who are more than just sort of symbols of, of poverty, then the switch gets flipped. They become, you know, the enemy of the state. All the sympathy for them is gone. When they're kind of poor and desperate, it's okay to, to feel sad and to identify with them. But as soon as they become activists, as soon as they become somebody who's taking a stand, um, all the sympathy is gone. And it's very easy to see that if they were a white family protesting, you know, the abuse of eminent domain, they would be heroes. But, you know, for Abrana and Manuel Arechiga, that was, it was not the case. Now, you grew up a Dodgers fan, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in LA, grew up a Dodgers fan. Um, absolutely, 100%. Was it difficult for you to do this book, um, unwinding the history and mythology of the Dodgers? It wasn't. It was, I mean, it was difficult to do it in many ways, but not for that reason. The, you know, I'm the kind of person who, and I think you could probably relate to this, if I love something, I want to, like, dig into it as much as I can and criticize it. And not in the, like, you know, be negative way, but in the, you know, be critical way. Um, and for me, being a fan of something means really exploring it and thinking deeply about it and studying it and knowing what you're supporting or, or not supporting. So. It was a natural thing for me to do, to explore. And as I wrote the book and got further and further into it, you know, I'm also a born and raised Angelino. I think I also love L.A., but <laughs> there's a lot of problems with L.A.'s history that, 
we let slide, we don't talk about. And so this is a this is a book that's really about failures on a lot of levels that that go way beyond the Dodgers. So it it was it was enlightening to to learn about this stuff. Um, it was shocking how often I could read something and see something that so closely mirrored what's happening now. But you know, I'm not going to stop living somewhere or loving a city because of its checkered past. I'm just going to incorporate that into the way I think about it and maybe have a healthier understanding of how we can affect change in the future or how we can see things that are happening now. You know, sometimes, you know, baseball brings out the, the amateur and even uh, terrible poets and people sometimes. And you hear about folks who say they go to Dodger stadium and they still uh, hear the stir of the echoes of Chavez Ravine as someone who's been there a bunch and as someone who's written this book, when you go to Dodger Stadium, do, do you ever feel any sort of vibe of what was there once before? Yeah, I absolutely do. It's hard not to. I mean, you can ignore it pretty easily if you want to. I mean, there's a beautiful stadium. There's a 15,000 cars parked around it. There's a loud PA announcer. There's a baseball game going on. There's food. There's beer. But, like, if you're in the parking lot in a you know dark, quiet part of the parking lot after a game or if you've studied maps of the neighborhood and you know where the houses were, uh, it's hard to put that out of your head completely. You know, it becomes part of the experience. If you look at the hills surrounding the stadium, you can think about how the earth was moved to make the, make the building itself. Uh, there's a, there's an elementary school buried underneath the parking lot in center field. I mean, just buried whole. It's, it's right there if you want to see it. So this is the big question. Knowing what we know, uh, should Dodger stadium exist? I mean, probably not. It exists. Uh, n- now it exists, and we, you know, I wouldn't take it away. But probably probably not. Mm. The book is Stealing Home, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between. Uh, I- I'm, a- I'm always honest with my listeners, Eric. I'm about halfway through it, uh, so I'm not done with it. But I got to be honest, I- I'm loving it. I mean, this is the best sports book I've read in a long time, partly because it's not just a sports book. So it's, it's a hell of an accomplishment. Um, congratulations. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Am, am I missing anything in terms of the book, in terms of the process of you putting it together that you'd like to add? No, I'm impressed you, you said all that with it, having only read half of it. You obviously know the story, though, which helps. Well, I know the story, but it's like it's one of those things where it's like I, I knew the topography of the story and now I'm digging deep and I'm, I'm loving it. Actually, it's a really cool way to read it because I'm like, oh, that's why. And so it's 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 really awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, no, I think you're good. I mean, it's sort of like it's sort of like exploring a myth that's been told a million times. Right. Like you read it in Mike Davis or you read it in all these different places and you're like, huh, I wonder what, what's really going on there. And like part of the research process that was fun was like kind of getting the like the deeper view and be like, oh, the same thing that you're experiencing is what I experienced writing it. Awesome. And, and what do you think of the Ry Cooter album? I like it. Um, you know, I think there's some problems with it. I think it's it's a little corny in places. I think he like perpetuates some, some of the like the mythology that annoys me about the communities. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's a cool piece of music, and you know, it's cool that he used a lot of like local kind of Chicano musicians to make it. Um, I, I appreciate that about Ry Cooter. He's good about like sharing the spotlight and sort of shining a light on the subject matter that he's interested in. And last question, because I ask this of everybody who comes on the show, um, what kind of music did you listen to during the process 
of putting the book together? What was your what was your musical muse as you were writing and creating? Um, I had a in the beginning of the book, you know, there's a quote from Juan Rulfo uh, from Pedro Paramo. I had another quote in there from Neil Young, Cortez the Killer, that I took out for rights reasons. No, oh, uh, the um, it's a shame. It's that that song was a good one. Uh, I listened to a lot of cumbia. I listened to a lot of Spanish language music in general. You know, old rancheros stuff like that. Um, and then just sort of silence. I'm I'm a person who can kind of happily write in silence if I'm in the zone. Nice. Well, it's a great book. Um, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Awesome. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the state of college sports. Okay, look, no one should expect college football to come roaring back this fall. If classes aren't back in session, football players will not be taking the field. And this isn't because the optics of student-athletes putting their health at risk while being unable to matriculate as students would be horrific. The NCAA has never given a solitary damn about optics, being as shameless as Laura Ingram after going on a bender of bleach. Instead, there won't be college football in autumn because the NCAA's revenue, unlike the NFL's, whose billions are tied to their broadcast deals, comes overwhelmingly from ticket sales. And there's no way 100,000 people will be gathering in close proximity at the Horseshoe by August. It is fitting, however, that right when it is clear that no football will be played, the NCAA looks poised to finally, at long last, allow players to sell their name, image, and likeness as soon as next year. This will allow athletes to be paid as sponsors for products, previously a verboten concept described as sacrilege to the amateur model. If these rules are adopted, student-athletes will finally be free to operate in the commercial world like the rest of us. That means if they want to be able to hold a paid quarterback clinic for kids, they can do that. They are asked to shill for a local car dealership, they are free to shill away. Critics of this plan have said that it will allow a small group of powerful schools to hook high school players up with the best side deals, totally throwing the competitive balance of college football out of whack. This is an absurd argument. In the first round of the NFL draft just this past week, or a couple weeks back, excuse me, almost half the players picked, 14 out of the 32 top picks, either attended Alabama, Clemson, LSU, or Ohio State. In other words, there already is no competitive balance. The argument sounds strikingly familiar to what people said about free agency in professional sports in decades past, that it would wreck the competitive balance. In reality, it did the opposite. It produced more parity and less of a system where dynasties dominated and most teams were left without a shred of hope. 
The NCAA, of course, is doing all of this because California passed and signed legislation last year, giving athletes the right to profit off of their name, image, and likeness. Other states looked to be following suit, and there was talk of federal intervention as well. NCAA President Mark Emmert and his army of lawyers saw the writing on the wall and have since been trying to get ahead on this so they could pass their own guidelines and requirements. For example, no athletes, according to sources, could enter an agreement with a company that is in competition with an official sponsor of the college. No Adidas deals if you go to a Nike school. Also, according to a source who spoke to the Associated Press, no school apparel could be branded with an ad for a company not in partnership with the college. Athletes would also have to disclose all all deals to their athletic departments. This way, the NCAA can at least keep some modicum of power over the earning potential of its athletes. It is also able to hold back the argument that strikes to the heart of its power. The idea that athletes should not only be able to profit off their name, image, and likeness, but should also be able to receive a cut of the billions of dollars in revenue that their blood, sweat, and tears produce. But as cynical as this process has been, it's a win for the athletes and it strikes a blow at the NCAA. Mark Emmert and his cartel is seeding the argument that these young people are a critical reason people go to the games to buy the merch. They deserve to be able to profit off of their exploits as students, just like any other student on campus. It'll be important to keep the pressure up. So it's not only the stars that are able to benefit, but every athlete who produces revenue. For too long, the NCAA has stolen predominantly black wealth for the benefit of coaches and administrators. That imbalance still needs to be corrected, but this is a step forward toward a measure of justice and freedom where before none existed. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! This is a very uh, last dance slash Michael Jordan theme. Just stand up and just sit down. Everybody's watching this documentary. We talked about it last week on the show. We talked about it two weeks ago on the show with Michael Lee. Uh, The Just Stand Up Award, though, goes to somebody who has been erased from the last dance, Craig Hodges, uh, the arch three-point shooter uh, on those early 90s Bulls teams, somehow does not exist in the documentary because he was an athletic rebel and he was somebody run out of the league uh, because of his uh, politics and because of his belief that sports should be a platform for social change. Well, they tried to erase Craig Hodges from this documentary, but Craig Hodges himself has not been erased. Since the documentary happened, he's done a ton of interviews. He did a Facebook event with Chris Broussard that over 100,000 people tuned into. Uh, So shout out to Just Stand Up for Craig Hodges. Even though Last Dance tried to silence you, you refuse to be silenced. 
The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Sit your ass down Goes to some very prominent ESPN announcers I, I hate naming names when it comes to people in the media But some of their most prominent basketball folks Who are saying Gosh, I'm seeing a different side of Jordan Through this documentary It's a different side of Jordan Hey, a different side of Jordan Like they're, they're finding 50 different ways To pretzel those words together A different side of Jordan Here's the issue though It's the side of Jordan that Jordan wants you to see. Michael Jordan had final say over the footage that we're seeing. So what you're responding to is brand management. What you're responding to is the shaping of Jordan's brand that Jordan is orchestrating for the 21st century. And there you are like a chumpus saying, oh, look at this. It's the new Michael Jordan. Please, you need to stop that right now and just sit your ass down. Real quick, I want to say something at the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch. For folks who've been listening to this podcast uh, for a long time, you know that Kaepernick Watch is oftentimes where we talk about other folks who are taking a knee in support of racial justice and fighting police brutality. And I just want to announce that I'm signed to write a book called The Kaepernick Effect uh, about people who did take a knee between 2016 and today. Uh, during the national anthem uh, in protest of racial inequity and police violence. And I'm interviewing folks. And yo, if you or anybody you know uh, took part in a protest like that, hit me up at edgesports at gmail.com. I'd love to interview you for the book. Um, And with that... We are done with the show. So for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.